welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. again with a modern issue in the church and one that is very current, uh, which is the question of same-sex attraction and whether same-sex attraction is sin. Now, you might think to yourself, I thought we dealt with this issue already, but even though Many, well, there is a significant capitulation on the issue of, um, of LGBT in general and on homosexual acts and whether they may be blessed or whether homosexual marriages may be blessed. So there's, there's, there's plenty of challenge on those fronts. We, we dealt with the, the challenge already on, on that level. But within what you might say uh, are solid or orthodox, uh, you may even use the word traditional churches, although they don't tend to be the, the mainline churches. They tend to be evangelical churches uh, who are holding the line on, um, on same-sex same issues, homosexual, uh, homosexuality-related uh, issues, that there is still significant debate about what same-sex attraction really is and how to categorize it, how to deal with it, and whether that same-sex attraction itself is sin. So we're going to take a look at that question this evening, and uh, we're going to interact with, um, interestingly, with, with a few different things. One, uh, but, but one name comes up uh, throughout this, this lecture, and that's the name of Tim Keller. And uh, Tim Keller is a PCA uh, pastor that's very well known, uh, who ministered in New York for a very long time. I, I think he's still there. Um, I, mean, I don't know if, I think his, uh, his ministry has changed somewhat. And I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, 
that he has retired from sort of his position as um, pastor at uh, the, the church there in New, in New York. Uh, nevertheless, he is still very much an influential figure within the PCA and then within evangelicalism more widely. And um, I, I listened to a, a brief interview today with him. You might even call it a, a debate. It was sort of an informal debate that took place at, a, uh, at Columbia University. And it was just a, it was a short clip. And he was presenting to, um, to a mixed audience on the question of homosexuality. And so uh, on one hand, I want to be, I'm going to make some critical remarks in a second. <laughs> But I want to be careful as I make those critical remarks because I am reminded of a, uh, an evangelist who one day was fielding some severe criticisms from people about the way he was doing evangelism. And uh, this evangelist said to his critics, well, I like the way I do evangelism rather than your way of not doing evangelism. And, uh, and one could say the same thing about you know, maybe on behalf of Tim Keller, who entered in a very, you know, into kind of a hostile environment and interacted in that hostile environment on the issue of homosexuality, something that is, uh, uh, requires some courage. Uh, and so I commend Tim Keller for that. In this interview, Keller said some things that were helpful and good and biblical. He affirmed that same-sex uh, acts, homosexual acts, um, it's not clear. Sexual acts are our sin. Uh, he had not. Uh, he, he took the opportunity and uh, to to explain the gospel. And and as he did that, I think that he was faithful in explaining the gospel. So there were some things that Keller did that were that were good in this interview. But there was also some things that I think uh, lead me to some criticism. And the reason I want to use this is because it. I think it's a criticism that could be leveled around the issue of um, same-sex issues quite generally. And I think that the church needs to get this right. At one point, he was asked, uh, you know, it's often presented that churches think homosexuals are going to hell. Do you think, you know, homosexuals are going to hell and, um, and Tim Keller kind of began an answer, and then the, the, the question was also then reframed a little bit. Well, do, or, you know, do you believe that if you do homosexual acts that you're going to help? And in response to this, uh, Keller mentioned a few things. Amongst his least helpful remarks was that he said that he knows that homosexuality doesn't send you to hell because heterosexuality doesn't send you to heaven. It's not a good statement. Um, and there's all sorts of problems with that statement. Now, now he was, you know, he's in a very difficult environment and he's trying to probably alleviate the mood. And, and there's some comedy in the statement, some humor in the statement, I should say, uh, that maybe alleviated some of the, the tenseness of the question. And so, um, you know, if we're being very charitable, we might overlook some of that. But it's interesting that when it came to pressing him on the issue of, uh, whether homosexual acts send a person to hell, Keller reframed the issue to say that, and he wanted to sort of say, no, 
and, and the reason that he said no is he wanted to reframe the idea of the person that goes to hell as one who is self-righteous, who does not submit to the lordship of Christ as sort of an ultimate rejection of God in Christ. Um, and, I, and I've seen, I, I've seen leaders do this at different times as well. And at times this is framed, and Keller Lee was leaning this way. I know he actually doesn't believe this, but he kind of leaned this way. I've heard Christian leaders say things like, well, it's not really sin that sends you to hell, it's your rejection of Christ. And that is fundamentally wrong. <laughs> it's, it, there's some truth to it in the sense that all sin contains a perspective that it is a rejection of God and of his Christ, by whom God rules and always has ruled, even before the advent of Christ. What I think we need to understand very clearly is that one is sent to hell for the transgression of God's law. I want to give you a bit of a, uh, I'm going to give you one more triad here um, when it comes to a doctrine of sin. And that is that I believe that sin oriented upwards is against God's person. And as such, it is rebellion. Okay. Against God's person, we may frame it as rebellion. If we consider sin as sort of uh, inwardly oriented, we would consider it against God's principles. And sin in that way would be corruption. Or you could use the word pollution if you prefer. And sin within sort of an outward orientation or, or outward perspective might be a better word perhaps. Um, is it's a sin against God's precepts, and you would call that transgression. So within this triadic perspective, there is a sense, and I don't completely disagree with Tim Keller or others who would want to, you know, emphasize the, the fact that all sin is against God. It is rebellion against him. That's true. But the way that triads work is it's usually the outward perspective that is the most accessible or obvious. And so that is the case when it comes to sin. That sin is most easily seen as a transgression against God's law. And it is for this reason that rather than wanting to run away from, yes, a very, a very challenging question, especially if it's in a public forum of, listen, is homosexuality a sin that sends you to hell? What I would suggest that we need to do, and I'm sharing this with you not to criticize Tim Keller, but to equip you as you interact with this world, is that rather than sort of what, what I think comes across in that interview with Tim Keller is it's sort of I know he doesn't believe this, but it, it has the effect of lessening the sin of homosexuality or homosexual actions as he focuses on the sort of the higher perspective of sin. 
that what I would want you to do is rather, yes, still aim at the equality of all sins, but to do that by pointing out how every single person, and you could do this when it comes to sexuality in particular, how every single person offends against God's law and is thus on their way to hell without Christ. So one of the clearest places to find this is in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says, you, you have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In other words, if you commit a sexual transgression, you are on your way to hell, whether it is of a heterosexual nature, and I don't even like that word, or a homosexual nature. All right, it doesn't matter what kind of nature it is. You're on your way to hell for a transgression, and the only thing that saves you from that is belief in the atonement of Christ and what he has done in his death and his resurrection for you. So what I would like somebody like Tim Keller in that situation to have done, and what I would like you to do in situations that you may be presented with, is to do the hard work, but I think the much more biblical work and the much more useful work is instead of trying to remove the offense of how Christianity views homosexual actions, it would rather be to offend everybody and to say, to, you know, what I wish Tim Keller had done is to point to the fellow that was his sort of his interlocutor and to say, actually, I do believe that homosexual actions are sin. I also believe that if you have ever looked at pornography, you are on your way to hell without Jesus Christ, you can put your faith in him and trust him now so that you can escape that. I think that is the right perspective. All right? Because the scriptures are clear in places like Ephesians 5 and Revelation 21 and 22 that sinners go to hell. The sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. And again, as I, you've heard me say this before, if you've listened to more than one lecture before, but that passage starts with cowardly. The cowardly also will go to hell. And the idea there is not just one-time offenders, but those who are shaped by and do not repent of their sin, do not trust in Christ and, and live a life of repentance. So this is, this is important uh, when it comes to this issue of, uh, of how we view homosexuality you know, and how we frame that. But now to deal perhaps a little bit more on point with the question of same-sex attraction and whether it is sin. Now, this is, this is kind of wrapped up in the questions that Tim Keller was dealing with. And now that I have been uh, somewhat critical of Tim Keller, let me suggest to you now, but by way more of commendation, that I'm going to interact around this question uh, with a report that was put out um, in 2020, it actually seems more recent than that. I'm not sure if I've, I've, that's what's on my paper here that I have printed out in front of me, but I thought that it was maybe just even more recently than that, that I had seen this, but, um, or maybe this was the interim report and then it's been finalized. It may, that may be the case, but there is a report that was done by the PCA 
of the Presbyterian Church in America, which included uh, people like on this committee, which included people like uh, Brian Chappelle, Kevin DeYoung, and Tim Keller. Um, and they put together what, in my view, is one of the most significant and faithful statements on, uh, on homosexuality ever written. Uh, I do think it is very good. I'm going to point out a se several things to do with it. Um, and, and then I'm actually going to lightly critique it. Uh, because I think that as good as it is, I think there are some emphases that, that need to be made, some, some distinctions that need to be made, um, at least by way of application of it, if not how it presents. But in general, it's a very good document. But when it comes to the question of whether same-sex attraction is sin, again, here now we're not talking about identifying uh, you know, by your same-sex attractions, which I believe is sin, uh, or especially, and, and very clearly should be for anybody that reads scripture, uh, that same-sex sexual behavior is clearly sin. But we're dealing solely here now with this issue of whether the attraction itself is sin. So here's my short answer, and I'm going to tease it out. Okay? My short answer is this. We must say that same-sex attraction is more than temptation and that it pertains to original sin. Okay, we have to say it's more than temptation. But we need to say that same-sex attraction is less than actual sin and must not be treated as actual sin pastorally. Now, the, the, if you haven't you heard that word actual sin before used in a technical way, I am using it there in a technical way, all right, which should become apparent. Um, that actual sin as distinguished from original sin and its corruption, actual sin is sin that is, that is considered or acted upon, but by that we mean not merely within the actions, that can also be in the mind or, or in the heart or in the attitudes. Okay? But original sin may pertain to actually the corruption of your nature. First of all, we want to state, now here I'm teasing it out a little bit more. First of all, it is important that we say that in a certain sense, same-sex attraction is sin. In a certain sense. It is not merely temptation. Now, it is temptation, but throughout Christian history, and I believe this is a, I guess it's a good distinction. I'm not going to say much more about it. If you want to ask me questions afterward, I, I, I might be able to comment further. But I do believe that in the Christian, of, that it is a good distinction that has been made in Christian theology historically that you may have temptation that comes from without and temptation that may come from within. Um, I said I wasn't going to comment further. I am going to comment a little bit. One of the ways this is important is when it comes to your Christology. The Lord Jesus did not have a corrupted nature. He experienced temptation, but he experienced it from without. As the devil presented things to him, and as he, uh, for instance, as he was as he was hungry and thirsted and etc. 
but he never had a corrupted nature that, that suggested sin from within, as we do. Historically, the, especially the, ref, uh, the Reformed understanding of sin has, has stated that uh, what's called concupiscence, um, technically that's what it's called throughout history, that this is sin in a very real sense, that it comes from Adam's original sin, it corrupts our nature, and it is the corruption of your nature. And so, it truly is sin in an important sense. So let me read to you from this statement. So there's statement number three on original sin says this. We affirm that from the sin of our first parents, we have received an inherited guilt and an inherited depravity. From this original corruption, which is itself sinful and for which we are culpable, proceed all actual transgressions. All the outworkings of our corrupted nature, a corruption which remains in part even after regeneration, are truly and properly called sin. And they reference the, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Every sin, original and actual, deserves death and renders us liable to the wrath of God. We must repent of our sin in general and our particular sins particularly. So I think that that is important to note. So, and then in regards to concupiscence, um, they also write, we affirm that impure thoughts and desires arising in us prior to and apart from a conscious act of the will are still sin. We reject the Roman Catholic understanding of concupiscence, whereby disordered desires that afflict us due to the fall do not become sin without a consenting act of the will. These desires within us are not mere weaknesses or inclinations to sin, but are themselves idolatrous and sinful. Um, so they are not neutral. There's no, there's no such thing as neutral in Christian theology. That's an important, um, that's an important note and one we have to... Um, bring to bear on our understanding of uh, the doctrine of sin. So this, this document, I think, is, is really important, and um, I think it does a good job of noting that there is an important sense in which same-sex attraction is sin. There's another sense, however, in which we would want to be careful in stating that it is not actual sin. Um, and again, I'll read from, uh, from this statement. So the layout of this statement is, uh, is excellent. It has the basic statements, and then it's got a wider, a wider statement. So I'm going to turn to uh, the wider statement under 2B, when it uh, states the, uh, the applications to same-sex attraction. It says this, First, the dynamic of spontaneous sinful desires or attractions is not unique to those no, no, sorry. I'm going to go to. I'm going to go over a couple pages. I'm, I've I've said enough. I think about um, about how it is truly sin. I'm going to move to the moral difference. So this is two B five on how we need to distinguish between actual sin um, and uh, concupiscence. So finally, we can discern a very practical value to the distinction between the sin that is constituted by our corruption of nature and all the motions thereof. And they're uh, quoting from the Westminster Confession of Faith and the actual transgressions that proceed from it. Even where original sin is manifested in the form of sinfully disordered desires or feelings, including homosexual attraction, 
there is significant moral difference between that initial motion of corruption and the decision to cultivate or act on it. To feel a sinfully disordered sexual attraction of any kind is properly to be called sin, and all sin, both original and actual, earns God's wrath. But it is significantly less heinous than any level of acting upon it in thought or deed. The point here is not to encourage those with homosexual attraction to become comfortable with or accepting of it. Rather, it is to counter the undue heaping of shame upon them as if the presence of homosexual attraction itself makes them the most heinous of sinners. On the contrary, their experience is representative of the present life of all Christians. John Owen has said, Yet sin doth so remain, so act and work in the best of believers, whilst they live in this world, that the constant daily mortification of it all their days uh, is, sorry, of it is all their days incumbent upon them. Our brothers and sisters who resist and repent of enduring feelings of same-sex attraction are powerful examples to us, uh, to us all, of what this daily mortification looks like in the best of believers. We should be encouraged and challenged by their example and eager to join in fellowship with them for the mutual strengthening of our faith, hope, and love. Here they've done an, uh, an excellent job of distinguishing between the corruption of the nature, which is, in a sense, truly sin, and yet what we would call actual sin as one uh, gives heed in some way to it, even if it is just to the first stirrings of it, um, in, you know, in the act of temptation, in consideration of it, for instance, or whether it be in the action that is carried out to the end. And it's here that I think I'm going to finish my thoughts, that this statement is, is good, and I want, to say, I want to say some words about how this should be applied and balanced biblically. Um, and I'm not sure if it would be fair to say that I'm critiquing the statement as much as I am just wanting to make sure it fits with the rest of Scripture. I want to point out that in Scripture, that even though there are passages that are clear, that we are culpable for original sin, and that the corruption of our natures is truly sin, that on the whole, the balance of the Scripture's emphasis on sin is, is on actual sin. And it's important to get that balance right, pastorally, or dealing with counseling. And that can be even how you walk through same-sex attraction with a friend that is committed to Christ, but is still struggling with these attractions. Okay? This is very important. There's a couple of ways that we see in Scripture this emphasis on actual sin. And, and, and again, this is aiming towards some pastoral summaries that, that we're going to get to. First of all, in Scripture, I mentioned three things. First of all, in Scripture... There is a presumption that the Christian will not sin. Again, let me state that. Restate that. There is the presumption of not sinning in Scripture. Now, in Christian practice, this is not possible. I am not what is called a perfectionist. I do not believe that uh, any Christian, this side of heaven, may to attain to uh, sinless perfection. Nevertheless, there are many passages that would state similarly to 1 John 3, 6, no one 
who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Or Paul in Romans 6, 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Also under this category would be those passages that, that I've mentioned already, where, for instance, the sexually immoral uh, don't enter into the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, similarly, Revelation 21. So this presumption of not sinning is also present in how the New Testament often uses the word sinner. And here's just, again, we're getting into the doctrine of sin this evening. It's important. Uh, by and large, unless it's carefully distinguished, carefully delineated, it is not biblical language to refer to Christians as sinners. It's not biblical language. Um, sinners are usually the wicked, the unrighteous. And they are opposed to the Christian or the righteous in Scripture. So I'm not saying one should never call somebody a Christian a sinner, but you need to be very careful about using that uh, statement because biblically that is, that is, that's just not how the terms are used scripturally. Um, there are other passages that state that when Christians sin, that that's considered you know, abnormal or life-threatening. Uh, here's a great quote by uh, Reformed theologian G.C. Uh, Burkauer. He says, there is no legitimate room in the New Testament for the continuation of our sin. There's only room for the power and the blessing of the indicative and the imperative. Let me state that again. There is no legitimate room in the New Testament for the continuation of our sin. There is only room for the power and the blessing of the indicative and the imperative. So that's important. Secondly, I'm gonna, I'll move through these uh, a little bit faster now. There's also in the New Testament this idea of blamelessness that the Christian ought to have. Paul talks about himself as, as in many different passages uh, as blameless. Uh, David is himself as well in Psalm 19. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So, again, Paul is not talking about being without sin completely, but he's saying that there is a general obedience, a sincere obedience that he would call blamelessness. The lastly, we would want to note that there is this idea of having a clear conscience in the New Testament. And it is, in fact, assumed and inferred and exhorted that the Christian ought to have a clear conscience before God. And in fact, if you sin against your conscience, even if it's not actually sin, but you're sinning against your conscience, then it is for you sin. That's how serious it is to have a clear conscience before God. And so in these ways, what we ought to understand as we apply that to same-sex attraction is that a person who is same-sex attracted, and I, I, have, I have several believing friends in this category. If there's a same-sex attracted person who is daily putting to death the deeds of the body, the moment any sort of 
uh, temptation is presented to themselves, they, they do everything in their power to wrestle it down with the word of God, the spirit of God, not acting upon that, those, that corruption of their desires, um, seeking in, in even seeking whatever they can to remove that corruption uh, through prayer, through, you know, scripture memorization, all the, all the, they're doing everything they ought to be doing, okay? Are they blameless scripturally? They fall into the category of blameless scripturally. Or do they have a clear conscience before God? Do they fall into that category scripturally? Uh, are, they, are they not sinning according to, for instance, 1 John and others? And my answer is yes. That here is somebody that is victorious in all these ways. And that that is where we should be leaning pastorally when it comes to the question of whether same-sex attraction is sin. So it's important to recognize that it is, in one sense, truly sin at the level of corruption uh, as it pertains to original sin. But it is also important, and this is where the emphasis ought to be, that it is not actual sin. And this means that, um, you know, when it comes to the life of the church, that I believe that same-sex individuals who are, sorry, same-sex attracted individuals who are having this sort of victory uh, ought to be able to minister in the life of the body. Um, I believe, in fact, that they evidence Christian victory in a way that is perhaps greater than those who do not have this level of struggle um, or, or have this particular struggle. So I think that we need to, it is, it is very important that we have a doctrine of sin that is robust, that is comprehensive and allows us to make some of these careful distinctions, which I believe the PCA has done, but also to balance things the right way when it comes to the life of the church, uh, fellow believers that we care about, uh, and who are doing everything they can to live under the Lordship of Christ and in a holy way. Thank Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on sex, gender, and the image of God. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures, or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Take care.